invite you to uh, visit with an old friend. Uh, a year ago on this Sunday, believe it or not, we, uh, we started this study, this series in Titus, and we have a little bit more to do. So let me encourage you to look with me at Titus chapter 3 as we uh, hear together the word of God beginning at verse 3. For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... When the goodness and loving kindness of God our Savior appeared, he saved us, not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us richly through Jesus Christ our Savior, so that being justified by his grace, we might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. The saying is trustworthy, and I want you to insist on these things so that those who have believed in God may be careful to devote themselves to good works. These things are excellent and profitable for people. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. And as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him, knowing that such a person is warped and sinful. He is self-condemned. Let's pray together. Lord, thank you for this, uh, your word. Thank you for this um, incredible, uh, concise, powerful summary of our salvation. Thank you for all that you have done for us in Jesus. And as we come to your word, our prayer again is that you would help us to understand your word, be changed by your word, and go forth from this place resolved to devote ourselves to doing good in the midst of the world because of the good that you have done for us and in us in Jesus. Lord, help us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. We do have uh, just a little bit more to deal with in this uh, of Paul's letter to Titus. And what I want to point out to you today as we look at this particular passage um, is that there is throughout this letter, there, there are really these two themes that, that recur in Paul's letter to Titus. Two themes, and they're very, very strong themes. And if I can uh, sort of summarize these themes, they're the themes of doing good and being saved. Doing good and being saved. Now, I just want to say to you that it's very important that we keep these things in right relationship to each other. 
this matter of doing good and being saved. Elders are to love what is good, chapter 1, verse 8. Older women are to teach what is good, chapter 2, verse 3. Five times people addressed in this letter are to do what is good, chapter 2, verse 6, and verse 14, chapter 3, verse 1, verse 8, and verse 14. And then you have other words throughout this letter, like blameless and the repeating of this word self-controlled, which describe behavior, behavior that is acceptable behavior, behavior that is pleasing to God, behavior that is sort of descriptive of, characteristic of uh, living the Christian life. Tremendous emphasis in this letter on doing good. And then there is also tremendous emphasis in this letter on being saved or the nature of salvation. In fact, if you look or if you remember or you look at the structure of this letter, there's a sort of a parenthesis that's created. The first four verses are this very compact definition, description of what salvation is. And then you come to the end of the letter and you've got the other end or other side of the parenthesis, verses 3 through 11, the verses that we read uh, this morning, and they describe this salvation as well. And inside the parenthesis is all this stuff about doing good, about right living and right behavior, whether in the church, which is what you see in chapter 1, or in the home, which is what you see in chapter 2, or in the society, which is what you see in the first verse or so of chapter 3. Church, home, society. Paul admonishes Titus to admonish those Christians on the island of Crete to pursue things that are good, to do what is good. But after all of that emphasis on doing good, here's this stunning, startling statement. Verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we have done. Not because of righteous things that we have done. Not on the basis of doing good. Doing good, being saved. How do these things relate to one another? I think it's important. I don't think it's a question you can ever ever really get away from. Let me put it to you this way. Ask yourself this kind of a question. and, And be fairly relentless with yourselves. Uh, Be fairly honest with yourselves, not to crush yourselves, not to condemn yourselves, but just so that you understand and you think through what is the proper ground of your assurance, of your acceptance with God, which is what salvation is all about. What's the basis upon which a person can be reconciled to the God who is really there? Ask yourself, where is my assurance grounded? Where is my confidence grounded? Where is my reconciliation to God fixed? Now, now, let me put it to you in this way. 
Think about some of these questions. Some of you have heard me ask these questions before, so forgive me if this sounds um, like repetition ad nauseum. But have you ever felt, have you ever felt or thought that you are more loved by God, more accepted by God, more liked by God because you have done some spiritual thing? Because you've had an especially lengthy time of prayer, heroic for you, or an especially lengthy and meaningful time of Bible reading. And you walk away from that prayer time or that time of Bible reading, and very subtly you have this sense that you are loved more and liked better by God because of that. Or here's another one. Do you ever, have you ever, however subtly, thought about yourself that because you know more than someone else of a theological kind, or because you are smarter than someone else, or more insightful than someone else, because you are rarely wrong about anything, that you are, by virtue of what you know or what you see or what you think, you are above other people, and so consequently more acceptable in the sight of God because you are superior to other people. You ever ever feel that way? Very subtly? Let me just suggest to you that, and again I say this not to condemn or to crush, but let me just say to to you that in either case you're on very dangerous ground. Because what happens to your sense of assurance or your sense of confidence if you bump up against somebody who happens to be a little bit smarter, a little bit more spiritual, a little bit more insightful, a little bit more theologically aware, a little bit more righteous? What happens to your sense of assurance? Where is your assurance grounded? And what happens when God in his providence, for reasons that he knows which I think we can only begin perhaps to understand, but what happens when God in his providence exposes you to subtle and dangerous and even devastating temptations and you cave? Where is your assurance grounded, your sense of well-being, your sense of acceptance with the Father on those occasions? See, Paul cares very, very much that we live out these lives that he calls us to. But he also cares very, very much that our sense of well-being, our security, our peace, our joy be grounded in the proper place. He cares very, very much that we avoid the danger of establishing our own righteousness and grounding our sense of assurance in our own righteousness. And so as he comes to the end of this letter, after all of this emphasis 
on doing good and right behavior and living that is consistent with a Christian profession, he brings us back to the proper place upon which our assurance is grounded, the only place where your assurance can be grounded. And that is in this fifth verse. He saved us, not on the basis of things that we had done, but because of his mercy. There are four things here. I have to do this quickly. We're going to race. But I want to encourage you to take to take mental notes or even write notes and in this week to come reflect on these things. Four things. What salvation isn't, what it is, what it includes, and finally where it leads. What salvation isn't, what it is, what it includes, and where it leads. First, what it isn't. We've already alluded to this. I've already suggested to this. Salvation or acceptance with God or being restored to fellowship with God or having peace with God or having the hope of eternal life or being forgiven. All of these things make up what salvation is, these things and so much more. But what salvation isn't is self-made. It's not self-made. This is the thrust of verse 5. He saved us not because of righteous things we had done. Now, this is striking. The word righteousness is used several times in the New Testament as a description of the ethical response that Christians make, that people make to the truth of the gospel or to the gospel itself or to the teaching of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16, all scripture is inspired by God or is breathed out by God and is profitable or is useful for teaching, for rebuking, for correcting, for training in righteousness. What's the the proper and right response to the teaching of scripture? Well, it is these things, one of which is righteousness. Or Ephesians 5.9, Paul writes, the fruit of of the light, the fruit of the light, that is the light that is in Jesus Christ and that Christians are now in by virtue of the fact that they are in Christ. You know this, you know this little data point, don't you, this little fact? We tend to talk rightly, legitimately, properly about having Jesus in us. Paul does it in Galatians. Christ in you the hope of glory. But over 150 times when the New Testament describes a person's relationship to Christ, it is not Christ in you, it is you in Christ. That is your environment. You are in the light, in Him, in Christ, in the Beloved, 150 times. You've been transferred. You've been taken out of one environment and you've been transferred into another environment. That's Colossians 1. And Paul in Ephesians 5, 9 says, the fruit of light, that is the light that is in Christ and the light which Christians are now in, the fruit of that light is all goodness, righteousness, and truth. And so righteousness doing right things, 
which takes in doing things that are merciful and just and kind and self-denying and other-centered. Someone has defined righteousness in this way. Righteousness is disadvantaging myself in order to advantage another. Unrighteousness is advantaging myself at the expense of another. So righteousness is a function of being in the light, being in Christ. It is doing just things, merciful things, other-centered things. That's one way in which this idea of righteousness is used as the necessary outworking of what it means to be united to Christ, connected to Christ. On the other hand, it is used with reference to human self-righteousness. The kind of thing that Paul talks about in Philippians 3, verse 6, where he describes his credentials. You know that passage where, where Paul lists all of the things that are true of him that he's a Hebrew of the Hebrews, that he was circumcised on the eighth day. All he's doing, he's just showing you his medals. That's all he's doing. He's just showing you all of the things that were for him credentials. This is what I am, he says. This is what I've achieved. These are my accomplishments. And specifically, he says, as for righteousness before the law, I was guiltless. Righteousness. Paul, the zealot, the hard-working zealot, the respectable, presentable, honorable, spit and polished, neat and tidy, not an embarrassment to anybody, Paul. The good guy. The Bible-reading, church-attending, error-seeking Paul. Paul, the one who persecuted the church. Paul, the one who opposed the way. In the face of the law, righteous and perfectly so. Peerless. So the word is used in that respect as well pointing to describing what we would call a self-righteousness. And here's the striking thing. The commentators, the commentators tell us that Paul, as he writes to Titus, who then is to teach these things, Paul, as he writes to Titus, has both types of righteousness in view. Isn't that striking? You weren't saved on the basis of anything you did. You aren't being saved on the basis of anything you are doing, and tomorrow you won't be saved because of anything heroic you set out to do today as a response to this sermon that is going to grip you by the heart and thrust you out into the world and make you world conquerors for Jesus. Past, present, or future. You are not saved because of anything you have done. Look, righteousness is a good thing. It's better than unrighteousness. 
Righteousness is a really good thing. But your righteousness, your performance, your achievements, the medals on your chest, the stuff you have in your head, the good things you've never at any point in the estimation of Paul is that the basis upon which you may have assurance of your acceptance with God. What is the basis upon which you may have assurance that you are accepted with God? If it isn't on the basis of your performance, your self-righteousness, even the good things that you do after a Christian, after you are a Christian, it is solely, entirely, because of God's mercy. That's what salvation is. It is mercy. What is mercy? Mercy is compassion. Mercy is what you see in Mark chapter 1. And I have, to, I have to point this out to you, that when you see Jesus doing miracles in the Gospels, he's not just showing off. I'm the Son of God. I have power. I can do stuff. It's not just a display of power. It's not just there to demonstrate the fact that he is, in fact, the Son of God. It is there to teach you and me about ourselves, about the depth and the extent of our need, so that when you see Jesus marching through the pages of the Gospels, and you see him in Mark chapter 1 being approached by a man with leprosy, a man who's extremities are being eroded by this disease. A man who has to cry out unclean when he comes into a place like this. You see Jesus, verse 41, being filled with compassion. Filled with compassion. And you see Jesus reaching out and touching him, doing the unthinkable No holy person touches an unholy thing for fear of contamination and ceremonial uncleanness. And Jesus reaches out and does the unthinkable, touches him, embraces him, and restores him. Matthew 9, 35, when he saw the crowds, he felt compassion for them because they were harassed and helpless like sheep without a shepherd. Compassion. For the helpless. Mark 14, or Matthew 14, 13 and following, at the feeding of the 5,000, he saw the large crowd and he had compassion for them and he healed their sick and he fed them. He's not just telling us something about himself in these things, he's telling us something about ourselves. He's telling us that we are the lepers. He's telling us that we are the harassed and the helpless. He's telling us that we are the hungry and the sick. And it's even more than that. When you see Jesus confronting those who are demon-possessed, those who by that demon possession are in league with the great adversary of God and the great adversary of the kingdom, you're reminded in those healings, In those deliverances, not only 
that you were sick, not only that you were hungry, not only that you were harassed and that you were helpless, but you were being reminded that you were the enemy. You were the enemy. I am legion, for they are many. Mark chapter 5. Where did Jesus go? He went to a cemetery. He went to a place of death. He went to a place where the powers of hell are arrayed against the kingdom. And he delivered someone out of that. One who was aligned with the forces of evil. And when you see Christ impaled upon the cross. And you read of those around him. Mocking him, hurling insults at him. You hear him saying, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. Sick, helpless, harassed, blind, dead. And as Paul says in verse 3, in fact, those who hated and hated one another. Compassion. Compassion is the heart of God for those in distress. Compassion is the kindness of God toward those in deep distress. And grace The other word that Paul uses in this passage, in this text, he has justified us by his grace, verse 7. Grace, as we've said before, I've said this to you countless times, grace is mercy in action. Mercy feels the distress of the distressed. And grace relieves the distress of the distressed. It heals those who can't heal themselves. It makes safe those who can't make themselves safe. It sets free those who cannot free themselves. When mercy shows up as grace, it shows up with power. It shows up with complete success. It doesn't show up as a partial Savior, a temporary Savior, an incomplete Savior. Mercy sees the need to save, and grace saves to the uttermost. So what does salvation include then? It isn't a self-made thing. It is a God-made thing. It is an expression of his love and his mercy toward those in distress. Well, what is included in it? Boy. Wish I had five hours to enlarge upon and unpack each of these things. I have to think. I don't know this. It's not in the text. But reading Paul's letters living with him for over 30 years, listening to the way he talks about the gospel, listening to him talk about the gospel in a letter like his letter to the Philippians where 
in prison. The idea of joy and rejoicing dominates his thinking, dominates his heart, dominates his soul. I have to think that after every one of these words, he stopped to reflect on it and collect himself and then go on. What is included in this salvation? Verse 5, he washed you. He washed you. He cleansed you. If you're a Christian this morning, you are clean. You may not feel clean. You may want desperately to be clean. Paul is saying to you, God is saying to you, if you are a Christian today, you are clean. If you are not a Christian today, you can be. You can be. Remember from a couple of weeks ago, I pointed out something that somebody had pointed out to me. It got to me through my daughter. My daughter said, you know, it was unique about John's baptism. It was the first baptism in which somebody baptized a person other than himself. All the other baptisms were self-baptisms, self-cleanings, self-cleansings. Are you tired? Are you tired of having to scrub yourself clean enough to be acceptable in the sight of God? Are you weary of having to satisfy somebody's expectations about what it looks like to be right enough, good enough, smart enough, faithful enough, prayerful enough, Bible knowing enough? This is the gospel. The gospel says the grace of God cleanses you. If you're a Christian this morning, you are clean. If you're not a Christian, you can be. This is what theologians call positional or definitive sanctification for those of you who want to be able to impress your friends at lunch. The Christian is someone who is holy. All of the uncleanness has been washed off. The blood-stained hands have been cleansed. The leprosy is cured. They're clean. Verse 5, you've been reborn. Literally, you are a new creation. If you're a Christian this morning, you're a new creation. You don't have to try to give birth to yourself. You don't have to try to reinvent yourself. You don't have to try reimagining yourself. If you're a Christian this morning, you've been reborn. You were a new creation. The old is gone. The new has come. If you're not a Christian, you can be new. You can be new. The old can be gone. It can be past forever. Verse 5, a related idea. You've been renewed. New birth brings a new thing into existence. Renewal is this work of renovation. It's a complementary idea. You're being rebuilt. It's not just that there's something new here, like a new conceptus or something like that, but there's something here that is emerging and growing and being formed and shaped and renovated to manifest, to express the love, the glory, the joy, the blessedness of God himself. You're being remade. And all of this is what the Holy Spirit does, as the text says. He washes us. He regenerates us. He renews us. God does it as he pours out 
richly the Holy Spirit upon those whom he came to save. Clean, new, being remade. And there's another one. Verse 7, you've been justified. Very simply put, what this means is that God, the just judge, the Holy One of Israel, looks upon you and says, not guilty, not guilty, innocent. In the time of prayer, I prayed for myself and I prayed for those of you in the room who are afflicted by these consciences that rise up to accuse you, that make assaults upon you who wed themselves to the devil, who rises up out of the abyss to make assaults upon the people of God, to condemn them, to drag before their eyes all of their violations of the law. And into that mess of darkness, God speaks. God speaks. And on the basis of the work of Christ in his death upon the cross, he says to you, if you're a Christian this morning, not guilty, innocent, free. Not because the charges have been dismissed, but because the charges have been transferred from you and have been laid upon Christ who bled and died so that you might hear the verdict of innocence. If you are a Christian this morning, you are justified, not guilty, innocent. If you're not a Christian this morning, This is an amazing thing. The gospel is, the gospel offer is that by receiving Christ, by embracing him, by believing in him, by resting in him, by giving up the credentials and the performance and all that other stuff, all the accomplishments that you've been living for your whole life, turning your back on it, walking away from it, and simply receiving Christ, you may hear from heaven you may hear from God himself, innocent, not guilty, because of my son. But it doesn't end there. There's this fifth thing, verse 7. He not only washes you, he not only makes you new, he not only begins this work of renovation in you, he not only declares that you are innocent and not guilty, he makes you his child. He makes you an heir. He adopts you and promises to you that everything that belongs to Jesus will belong to you. What do you inherit? You inherit eternal life. Verse 7. Eternal life. The blessedness of eternal life. And again, not some disembodied experience where you're some sort of phantasm of some kind with a golden harp flitting about on a cloud. No, you are given the promise of a new heaven and a new earth, a heaven and earth more majestic, more beautiful than the world in which you live, more full of glory, sights, sounds, smells, tastes, walks in the woods, sailing up and down the coast for two and a half years, hiking in the mountains, and sitting at table with Jesus forever to delight in him and all of his goodness. The hope 
of eternal life. And what does Paul want Titus to stress? Verse 8, he wants him to stress these things. These things. Washing. Regeneration. Renovation. Renewal. Justification. Being adopted. Being an heir. These are the things that he wants him to stress because these are the things that make up salvation, that make up the gospel, that are the hope of the gospel, that are the good news of the gospel for any who will hear and who will believe and who will trust these things. And so where does salvation lead? Salvation leads then to doing good. (laughs) Good has been done to you. Good has gripped you. Good has captivated you. Good has laid hold of your hearts. Good is transforming your hearts and your lives. And so out of that experience of this infinite, unimaginable goodness, Paul admonishes the people of Christ to go and do good. Do good. Simply to get in step behind Jesus. And with him leading you and by his grace empowering you, Follow hard after him, exhibiting the righteousness that is embodied in him. Goodness is not the root of salvation. Goodness is the fruit born out of hearts that have been laid hold of by this glorious gospel, by this glorious Christ. He has saved you. He has shown you mercy and grace so that he might set you free to pursue what is good. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we bow before these things, amazed at them, longing so very much to understand them better, longing so very much for your spirit to press these things into the fabric of our souls so that we might go from this place exhibiting the kind of mercy and grace that have reached out and laid hold of us. Oh God, for the sake of your name and for the sake of your Son, cause us to know this grace, this mercy, so that in this world we might exhibit this grace and this mercy. We pray in your son's name. Amen. Stand with me and we'll sing verses 1 and 2 of My Jesus, I Love Thee, number 648.